On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold, the sin, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I was speaking with a parishioner earlier this week about running. She runs cross-country. And we were talking about uh, what she's doing with that and how well that's going and um, as they prepare for another season in the fall. And it got me thinking back about my own cross-country experience. You can laugh. Yes, I used to run cross-country. Um, and I remember way back then when you were at the starting line and you were waiting for the starter pistol to go off. And that sense of anticipation was huge in your heart. You just loomed. You were waiting to go, even though if you were like me, you knew that you weren't going to be at the head of the pack. You couldn't wait to hear that sound and take off. I imagine that in some ways, Pentecost was a great deal like that feeling for the apostles. That uncertainty, that building anticipation, that expectancy and promise of newness, of a new covenant. And Jesus set it up that way, friends. If you have your Bibles with you, open up with me, and you can look at the beginning of the book of Acts. If you don't have your Bibles, the leaflets in there have today's readings in them, in the bulletin, but I would commend you to open your Bibles because you can see the fuller picture. If you look at, with me at the beginning of Acts, we see Jesus leaving his apostles with this idea of anticipation, right? Last week we were talking about the ascension and the Lord, our Lord says that he's going to ascend. And if we look at verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, And while Jesus was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so they must have been thinking, what's this going to be like? What is this Holy Spirit that you promised? Jesus had said some things of him to them in John 15, for example, and throughout his ministry. And yet, what would it be like to receive the Holy Spirit? That anticipation, that waiting, waiting. And I think waiting is hard. I know waiting is hard. If we look at our own lives as we anticipate things, 
that we want, that we desire, it's hard not to just go out and make it happen or go out and get them, right? We don't like to wait. And yet waiting is crucial here because apart from the Holy Spirit, Jesus tells his followers, you can do nothing. Apart from his Holy Spirit, they can do nothing. And so they must wait and they must pray. You can imagine the intensity of that. You know, some of you know, and I don't think uh, they would mind that um, uh, Mark, who is usually our thoroughfare, is not here this morning because he and his wife are awaiting a little one who will be my nephew or niece, perhaps. But most of us are guessing nephew. What that waiting must be like for Alicia and Mark, I can only imagine. And yet, here we see this waiting here for the Holy Spirit probably in some ways exceeds even the waiting of a child to be born. Look at verse 14 with me. All these, that is the apostles, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So what were they doing as they waited? They were praying. They were in prayer. I think too often we can gloss over that. That all of a sudden the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles. And they went out and did ministry. But don't lose this. That they waited upon the Lord and they waited intentionally with prayer. They were gathered there together. The apostles, the women, Jesus' mother. For nine days if we're to stick with the um, way that Luke sets up this passage in prayer. And second of all, what do we notice? They're gathered. They're not waiting alone. They're gathered together. Acts 2.1, where our passage picks up, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And so we see a second principle of the church, that we wait in prayer and that we gather together. They're gathered together when the Holy Spirit falls on them. And this is important because the Father chooses to send the Holy Spirit on a church that's prayed and gathered and consistently is choosing Him. You know, the New Testament is rife with imagery for the church, right? You're probably familiar with some of those from the uh, epistles. What is the church called? Shout them out. The body of Christ is one. What are other analogies or metaphors used? The bride. Yeah, somebody else. I can't hear you because of the fan. The way. The way. Yes, the way. The kingdom. The flock. John 10. And the city and kingdom in Revelation. The temple in Peter. This idea of God's gathered people is crucial for the church. You see, we're meant to act together. We're meant to wait together. We're meant to pray together. We're meant even sometimes to suffer together and rejoice as we rejoice today together. And the church is weakened whenever one of its members is absent. It's weakened because that person is not part of that gathering, giving glory to God and sharing his or her gifts with the other church. 
Likewise, that person is weakened when he or she is not gathered with the church, right? You know, you'll hear me pound home, be here Sunday after Sunday, and this is a dedicated crew. You are. And yet, I don't say that just because I want good attendance figures. I say that because it's important for your soul. And it's important for us. We miss you when you're not here. We can't pray quite the same way when you're not here. It's a principle of the kingdom to act together. Jesus communicates and gives power through his church gathered. Think back on John 15, 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So not just is it important to be gathered, it's crucial for our faith. And God is faithful. God is faithful to fulfill his promise. Look at verses 2 through, uh, verses two through 4 of chapter 2 in Acts. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we see that God doesn't just promise things, but he comes through. He makes good on his promises. And if you know anything about the Jewish feasts, you know that the Feast of Pentecost is not something the church came up with, but is something that God's people of the Old Testament were given. The 50th day after Passover. So when you see this passage and you ask yourself, why is it that God wanted them to wait? Why is it that God intentionally had them pray? You hear, get the answer. Because of Pentecost, we have all nations coming to the temple. Coming to the temple to give glory to God the Father. Because they were Jews. And so they were there to celebrate this Jewish holiday. And as the Holy Spirit falls upon the apostles and gives them the various tongues, they go out and because of God's timing are able to preach in all of these different languages that they don't know to people from all over the world about who Jesus is. People that were prepped because they were there expecting God to move. Each of them hears the works of God in his own tongue, we're told. And going off last week's sermon, notice the apostles are not confused about what Jesus wants them to do. Do you know, so often it seems to me people get confused about the Holy Spirit and what his will is. Is he signs? Is he wonders? Is he speaking in tongues? Is he fill in the blank, right? And yet here we see very clearly what is the Holy Spirit? What is God's will? As we said last week, to manifest Jesus Christ the Son. To give glory to Jesus who gives glory to the Father. And so here we see Jesus promising that the Father will send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit fulfilling that promise and equipping God's people to go out and proclaim the word of the Lord to people whose languages they don't even know. God is faithful to equip when we're prayerful, waiting, and obedient. 
And so that equipping, which went on 2,000 years ago, still goes on today. It still happens. You and I, friends, are offered such a marvelous and princely inheritance, if we're willing to grasp it. The Holy Spirit acts today through the church if we're prepared and allow him to. He acts through the word of God. He acts through sacramental acts. He acts through us preaching about Jesus. And when I say preach, I don't mean you have to come up here and stand in the pulpit, but I mean to proclaim Jesus to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your family. In those hard situations, yes. In those easier situations, yes. Proclaim Jesus, friends. That's our heritage. That's our inheritance. And that's our duty. 19th century Anglican priest and Oxford scholar John Keeble writes, We may truly say that as Jesus was anointed to be prophet, priest, and king, so his Holy Spirit has anointed his whole church, and what is more, each particular Christian to be some sort of prophet, priest, and king in his stead. What does that mean? It means that as the church gathered, we are prophet, priest, and king in Jesus' stead. That means that as the church gathered, we come together regularly. We give to the needs of the church. We proclaim weekly here in this pulpit who Jesus is. We guard the scriptures. We don't deviate from them. We open the word of God to understanding so that they may teach us. And we have that hope because we know the end of the story, whereas our world does not. We are those keepers as the church. What does it mean that we're not just prophet keeper and keepers, but we're priests? It means that as the church gathered, you and I are priests because we gather together and we praise God together and reveal him properly, balanced and correctly to those around us in the world. You know, we don't just do liturgy for fun. We do it because it's God properly ordered and explained to the world. We're priests. We also bring forth the prayers of the church, those gathered and those outside in need of our prayer. We serve as priests, intermediaries between God and this world. Finally, as the church gathered, we also have the anointing of kings. Kings do what? They interpret the law. They execute the judgments. And so the church gathered interprets scripture. It puts together creeds, catechisms, creates laws and boundaries and doctrine in order to give us the way to follow God not just to faithfully gather, but to work. And so the church is also kingly in that way. And yet, John Keeble, if you noticed, said that that triple anointing of the Holy Spirit wasn't just on the church gathered, it wasn't just on the church together as an institution, but we each, particularly as individuals, are also prophet, priest, and king in our own places. That's our inheritance. You might think to yourself, well, how am I a prophet? 
Well, first and foremost, as we've said, we are given the duty to manifest the name of Jesus, to proclaim the same root, his excellencies, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.9. You, friends, you, Christian, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And here's the crux of it, that you may proclaim, which is the same word as preach, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9. So you, friend, are a prophet and a priest in that priesthood. A prophet in the sense that you proclaim Jesus' excellence, as Peter tells us to do. The time for being bashful is over. You and I live in a free country, at least for now. And I'm convinced that part of the problem with our society's view of Jesus and Christians is that we are more adamant about political issues and taking stands on things other than Jesus Christ. And so the world sees us as just issue people or just culture warriors or just social justice people. Stop it. It's not about that. It's about proclaiming Jesus Christ first and foremost. And you know what? The world would see that if the American church was more faithful to that task. How do we do it? It's hard. You have to know enough about Jesus in order to proclaim him, right? If your neighbor came up to you on the street and said, tell me, why are you a Christian? Why do you follow Jesus? Would you be able to do it? Do you know that much about him? I hope so. If you find yourself wondering, well, do I? Go home today and write down. Just take a piece of paper about this size and write down, why am I a Christian? Why do I believe in Jesus? Why do I follow him? Go through and see why it is. It'll help you be concise about it. How has Jesus comforted you? How has he confronted you? How does he shape your life? What difference does he make? That's prophecy, friends. Forth, forth telling who Christ is. Second, you are a priest. You're part of the priesthood of the church. You're not ordained a priest like me, that's true. I have my own particular role, except for Father Sean over there, he is too. But you are ordained upon your confirmation into the order of laity in the church. That's your ordination, that's your commissioning. Every time you attend service here, every time you serve as part, part of Christ's priest, priesthood, you bring glory to Jesus Christ. And think about it. How do you do that? How are we called to do that? Well, we don't just foretell Christ, but we bring, God, we bring the people who would know God to God, right? What does a priest do? Again, a priest serves it in the, the intermediary. He is in between God and the people, not to be a fence between God and the people, but a bridge between God and a people who are lost, but who he loves. Every time you bring prayers to the prayers of the people, you're being a priest. Every time somebody says to, says to you, will you please, please pray for me? 
and you actually follow up on it and you pray during the prayers of the people for that person, you're being a priest because you're bringing that person who's not here in himself or herself before God in your prayers. That is a powerful responsibility and duty, isn't it? Not just to proclaim, but to bring people before the very throne of God himself. Have the courage to do it. Write down those requests when people say, will you pray for me? Say, yes, yes I will. This Sunday and in my daily prayers. Every time we gather to proclaim the Eucharist, we act together as prophets and priests, proclaiming Christ's death and resurrection, and then offering to the world this unbloody sacrifice that was once done on our behalf of Jesus Christ. That, too, is a priesthood act that I can't do without you, my friends. I can't. So you, too, as individuals, are kings. You share in Jesus Christ's kingship, in your love of the church, as he loves the church. The church is Jesus' bride. St. Paul speaks of it multiple times. In Ephesians, he says this, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Now, we always focus on this passage dealing with husbands, but let's focus on it for a second, dealing with the church. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with his washing of water and the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. You and I share in that kingness of Jesus in our love for his church. The church stands as a, might, as a mighty continuity going from Jesus' time all the way till now. It stands as his bride. Yes, it's true, it makes mistakes and it's blemished and yet you should still love her. You should still love her, friends, because Jesus loves her. We rejoice that we're part of this bride. We rejoice that we're nurtured by the church as a mother that teaches us, consoles us, feeds us, frees us. And in part of Christ's kingship, we love the church because Jesus loves her and rejoices in her and even more wonderfully rejoices in us. Therefore, we must rejoice too. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16 in summation says, Jesus is speaking and he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, the spirit and the bride. Did you catch that? The spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, and the bride, that is the church, say, come. Come. And let the one who hears say, come. Who is it who hears? It's us. The church and the spirit speak to us and says, come. And we turn to those around us and say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That's the gospel. 
that Jesus died for you at a price costly to him and free to you. Let us not see, let us see rather, all of our calling here and not underestimate the anointing and authority that we're given. Let us not sell short what we do and pray and are every Sunday and going forth. Let us not leave that at the bounds of the church because you, friend, are anointed in that Pentecost anointing. You are prophet, priest, and king. And like that runner at the beginning of the race, you have a path marked out for you, friend. We stand at that starting line symbolically once again today on Pentecost, anticipating what the Lord would do with us. As Hebrews says, therefore, friend, Therefore, Christian, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Amen.